Previously on Good Sex, Bad Sex. I love English archetypes. Public schoolboy, early 30s, MD of his father's company, you know. Sort of person who says chin chin before every drink. Fan of Boris Johnson, obviously. <laughs> I stripped down to underwear at the bottom of the stairs and he watched me slowly walk up. I paused at the top of the steps and looked over my shoulder. So what do you want to do? I want to make love to you, he said. Like full on Barry White kind? Oh, yes. We wrestled in the bedsheets for the better part of an hour. His hair was soft and thick and smelled slightly metallic. And he said, what can I do to make you come? Hello and welcome to Good Sex, Bad Sex, a podcast from metro.co.uk. It's kind of like rain on your wedding day, but with a lot more happy endings. My name is Phoebe Lynch. And my name's Miranda Kay. <laughs> Check out our blogs at metro.co.uk. Coming up, we are going to be chatting to one of the most straight-talking guests that we've had on the show. My name is Maggie McNeil and I'm a whore. Is that enough or should I tell you more? <laughs> So Maggie McNeil is going to be talking to us about Foster and Sester. Have you heard about these, BB? Um, Foster and Alan. Foster. <laughs> very close. Very close. Uh, it's Foster and Sester. And these are the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Acts, which is actually causing quite a bit of problems over in the US, especially towards sex workers. And does Maggie have stuff to say? Oh, yes, she does. Tell us a little bit about your little journey from suburban New Orleans to Seattle's finest sex worker and activist. Well, that's very nice of you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's see. The the quick version is um, when I was 18 and still in school, there was an opportunity one day that presented itself. And I'll tell that story if you like. But the, Mm. the, the long story short version is I ended up being paid for sex when I didn't quite expect to. And uh, having the money in my hand and went, oh, I now, can we can't, sell we can't this. skip over that. No. I can Sorry. sell we're gonna, this. We're going to go for the We're going to go for version. the story. The longer yeah. version is um, I was a broke college student, and I was referred by a friend of a friend, and there was an engineering professor at a school I shall not name, uh, but it wasn't the school I went to. And his wife was also an engineer, but she was a commercial engineer. And as it turned out, they both had conventions the same week different conventions Mm -hmm. which was early in january before school started and simultaneously there was a contractor who had offered them to redo their roof at a cut rate if they waited for the off season and so the contractor called them and said i can do it this week and they said we're not going to be at home this week and so they hired me as a house sitter right and what happened was... This is was, the start of the best porn film I've yeah. ever seen. Oh, yeah. So it was $50 a day, which was, of course, in 1985, good, really good money for a college student. And um, and I was expecting seven days, $350 for the whole week. I was like, ooh, $350 for the whole week. Wow, wow. You know? And so the contractor finished early, and the gentleman arrived home early on Friday. Yeah. And so I'm taking him around and showing him all the things that... Um, the contractor said, oh, make sure you show him this. And, and, you know. and I'm thinking to myself, I'm only going to get 250 because I was expecting Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And meanwhile, I realize he's making a pass at me. And so it kind of blurted out of my mouth, can I stay on the clock? And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay. 
And so half an hour later, I walk out with the whole 350 instead of 250. (laughs) And I was like, oh, look at this. I can do this. And and then for the next two years, I sort of dabbled and uh, stopped doing that in 87 when I very, 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 very stupidly got married to a a very useless man. And (laughs) when he left me in 95, I started kind of thinking about the idea of going back to sex work. I stripped for two years, starting in 97, and then in January of 2000, went escorting full-time, and boom. Was there any moral dilemma in your head with it? Like, what's... Oh, well, the only moral dilemma would be, boy, was I stupid for giving it away for 10 years. (laughs) That was really stupid. I mean, God, that was stupid. Why did I do that? (laughs) You know, uh, yeah, there's no no moral. uh, uh, Even though I was raised Catholic... Um, my mother was actually so averse to the subject of sex that I didn't get the negative either. So in other words, not only was I not told about sex, I also didn't get sex is dirty. I didn't get anything. There was no input of any sort. Yeah. Even from peers, people around you, you weren't thinking? Um, South Louisiana is a little different environment, but, Mm. but no. Is the answer. Yeah. No, not really. Um, and when I went to University of New Orleans, and it was really actually a fairly uh, sexually liberal school. You know, we were all polyamorous. And, of course, we didn't call it polyamorous back in those days. We called it open relationships. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, um, my favorite cousin sort of outed me as bisexual, you know, uh, on purpose because I was sort of skittish about that sort of thing. And, oh, yeah, Maggie's a switch hitter. I'm like, why do I have to? She, oh, yeah, she's ACDC. You know, I was like, oh, All the groups. thank you. <laughs> All the big groups. This thank is your you. favorite cousin. Yeah. Oh, yes, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. <laughs> no, he really was. No, he really was. He, he was the guy that... Um, Gave me all the lowdown on guys. He would sit me down and 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 basically like, okay, like guys are like this, yeah. And this is what you have to remember. And so, yes, I thought he could walk on water. Stood you well for later life. Yes, gave you a few tips. Very much so. <laughs> the long story short, person is I eventually married my favorite client. We were married for a while, Hang and on. then yeah, what? what? Yes, you married your favorite client. Yes. So whenever I've spoken to anyone before about this, and I've always said, do you get involved with the clients? I've always said, no, but you did. I did this time. And it's actually not super uncommon. I would not call it the norm by any means. Mm. But I know other escorts that have married clients. Is this a, the marriage after the guy? Yes. That you, oh, so this is second marriage? Yes, second marriage. Okay. Yes, yeah, the first one was completely useless. The second one, even though we're divorced now, I still like him. Yeah. And I st- actually still love him. He's a lo- lovely person. We just couldn't live together, actually, is what basically happened. And sometimes people think, oh, it's because you're an escort. No, actually, that was not the problem. In fact, if anything, when I retired for a while... It actually started causing more problems. <laughs> so, Why? Yeah, a uh, very long story and, and too much to go into and too much to do the laundry. But more or less, I think it, it changed the dynamic. Uh, 2010, I went back to work part time, uh, having stopped in 2006, and then 2010 back to work part time, and then full time again in 2014. 
And I moved to Seattle in 2015, and here we are. Because you're quite famous within sex worker rights activist circles for having the blog The Honest Courtesan. Yes. Which is where you bring in uh, things like artwork and philosophy and essays and books and performances based all around different aspects of the sex industry. Yeah. When did you start writing The Honest Courtesan? 2010. Okay. 2010. And and the, the reason that happened is because I started really being a sex work activist in 2004, Mm-hmm. Uh, online, but it was sort of just a dilettantish kind of thing. Uh, New Orleans didn't really have a big sex worker rights community or anything, so it was all online things. Yeah. And I was starting to try to write a book, but doing it the old-fashioned way. You know, I kept looking for agents and stuff, and nobody was interested. So I sort of put that on the back burner, and then I came uh, very late to blogging, unlike some of my friends, who sure remain nameless. And... <laughs> um, I came very late to it, and when I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't have to worry about an agent, I don't have to worry about an editor, I can just write this stuff. Yeah. And I did. Honestly, I didn't expect many people to read it. I just sort of wanted this outlet, right? Mm. So this was in July of 2010, I started doing it. Mm. And then in October, I guess it was, so the blog was only a few months old, that was around the time when... The whole sex trafficking hysteria was starting to ramp up. And that was the first year that this whole gypsy whores myth, as I call it, this idea that there's this lost tribe of Gomorrah who mm. wanders about the earth, going to every sporting event and, and to make money there. Uh, yeah. That's when it really started in earnest with the Super Bowl in um, the 2011 Super Bowl in Dallas. Just to explain, just to explain just a little bit about this is uh, there is so many media outlets that are convinced that on places like the Super Bowl and when big things happen, the World Cup or the World Cup, scores or the Royal Wedding, scores of sex workers are going to land into town. Oh, thousands, thousands, forty thousand was the number that I saw thrown around for forty thousand. Forty thousand. That's what we mean about this. This tribe of yeah. Gora. Yes. I love how you yes. put that. And and so this was was going on and a reporter for I guess it's called the Dallas New Times, he contacted me out of the blue and said, I found your blog and I found and I'm really interested in what you have to say about this debunking this thing. Yeah. And that spread through that whole village voice system and sort of made me known very quickly and and that was really where I started becoming more more well known. When we say sex worker rights activists, how would you how would you describe what that means to people? As I mentioned earlier, I'm bisexual, right? So I was paying attention when the whole LGBT rights thing started, you know, back in well, it started in the seventies, but I was very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the eighties started paying a lot more attention to it. And one of the things I noticed I mean in the seventies being gay was a punchline, right? It was the sort of thing of like, oh, it's those weird people who live in San Francisco, New Orleans, and Greenwich Village, New York, and they don't live anywhere else. Mm. No, we have no such thing as gay people in Chicago. We have no such thing as gay people in Dallas. So when people began to start knowing um, other gay and lesbian people, then people started not wanting to oppress them anymore, Mm. right? When it wasn't some weirdo who lives over there, when it was, oh, no, it's my Uncle Jim. Oh, it's my cousin. It's my friend. It's my coworker. It's that nice lady down the street. Mm. When, When people started realizing that, the support for oppressing 
uh, people for their homo- for their homosexuality started to evaporate. Yeah. And I think that's where we need to be with sex work. I think we really need to, to let people know and understand that. No, really, you have met sex workers. You just don't know it because yeah. they didn't tell you. Do sex workers need help more now? Yes, because, I mean... Back when in the day, when was that day? That day was a long <laughs> time ago. It. it was a long time ago, pre nineteenth century, really. <laughs> um, I remember that. Yeah, no, uh, not quite that old. Yeah, you know, it was viewed as just a, it was a thing, right? People might look down on sex workers, but there was not some sort of societal, society wide oppression that much, really, until. Uh, that really kind of started at the beginning of the 20th century. You started having this whole um, white slavery myth, the idea that women were being forced into prostitution by evil, dark-skinned men. Um, and then that sort of went away, went away in Europe um, because of the First World War, because people had bigger fish to fry. And it went away in the United States with the Depression. And so all through the 20th century, we see these laws that were made during that time but they weren't heavily, heavily, heavily enforced, right? In New Orleans, we would see um, Easter week, for example, or when some political campaign's going on. Oh, they do this big thing where they do a bunch of stings, you know, but for the most part, they left us alone. And then around the turn of the century, we started seeing a ramp up and because of this whole sex trafficking hysteria, which, of course, is just the old white slavery hysteria, redux, yeah. Right, it just comes back, and so now I hit the same thing. And as soon as police departments realized they could make tons and tons of money from government grants to go chasing after hookers and clients, they started doing that. Oh, is that that's is, why you think? Oh, sure, that's exactly where it is. It's it's you know uh, there's a lot of money in in what what um, Laura Augustine. Uh, who's an anthropologist who studied migration and, and the sex industry. And she calls it the rescue industry. Mm-hmm. There's a whole industry around these people of big, big amounts of money going to, quote, save the whores, close quote, yeah. uh, because we're all supposed to be victims, of course. That's where it's all coming from. And is it going to like various police departments, religious um, people? All of like, the above. All of them. My, my, my favorite example is San Jose, California. Mm-hmm. In 2009, I believe it was, San Jose was, was there, the police department was running out of money. They eliminated the vice squad. They got rid of it because they simply didn't have enough money for it. Mm. And basically when they're looking at, okay, can we afford to go chasing after people for consensual activities anymore? No, let's put this money to yeah. real crime. Two years later... They got a big grant from the government. They rebranded the vice squad as the human trafficking task force, put the same cops back on it, went back to the same old stings, but now they're calling it the human trafficking task force. And it's really the same old vice squad. So we know that there is such a thing as coercion into the sex industry. That does not mean that that coercion is being performed by gigantic multinational gangs 
kidnapping, screaming children from shopping malls or pulling mm. them through Facebook, and that there's a hundred thousand of them a year, and that no woman ever does sex work voluntarily, and all these other, or that forty thousand of us are shipped yeah. to every sporting event. There's this gigantic mythology uh, that has been built up around a simple fact. Uh, the other way I put it, which might be even funnier, is. If you come home and you find cake crumbs on your table, that does not mean that uh, Queen Elizabeth, former President Obama, and Elvis had a tea party there. There'd be no crumbs <laughs> if Elvis had been there, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, but he'd eat them all up. It's this conflation between sex work and sex trafficking, which is where the problems are coming from. So in America, the current sex worker laws is that it is just criminalised. Correct. It? So it's just uh, that no one can do it ever, ever, ever. Yeah, it's not like it is here. I mean, yeah. here, you know, uh, the actual exchange of money for sex here is legal. It's just that they make all these crazy laws around it. Yeah. In the United States, the actual exchange is criminalized. And that means that we have people who are known as traffickers, but really mm. what they are is just other people who are helping sex workers. Correct. So, so sex workers in America, they need someone to be a driver. And right. this term of trafficking is what's been so problematic recently. Yes, exactly. But <laughs> decriminalization is when... Sex work is basically treated as a job. And we only have that two places in the world right now, actually, New Zealand and New South Wales State, Australia. It's a job, right? And uh, a lot of the prohibitionists try to make it look like what we want is a free-for-all. Like some sort of, oh, we will never be affected by any laws whatsoever. No. Mm. What we mean is, uh, the example I like to use is, if you have a health inspector come into a restaurant, let's say, and he finds a health code violation, what he does is he gives you a notice and says, you have until next week to clean this up or you're going to get fined. And then he leaves and he comes back the next week. And what he does not do is come in with a squad of cops, arrest all the kitchen staff, the owner, the diners, and everyone else, and close the place down. But that's what the equivalent is under legalization. Mm. If you break a law around sex work, it's the cops who are enforcing it. Whereas under decriminalization, it's basically like the restaurant, you're, you're getting a citation. The, the cops are not the ones handling it. It's an administrative issue. Yeah. And how's it working out in New Zealand? Wonderfully, beautifully. In fact, I just literally read an article where um, there was a report done in New Zealand where the New Zealand Immigration um, Service, or whatever they're called, has actually been looking hard for cases of trafficking and has literally not found a single one in the entire period they were looking, which I think was from, uh, I want to say 2011 to the present. Not one. Not one single case. Not one single case of, of you know of anything that would be called trafficking in the United States. Yeah. Because I think in New Zealand, you've got, because it's decriminalised, so you've got much more of, um, you've got more ways of reporting abuse and reporting trafficking. Whereas, like, one of the things that's happening in America is because all the uh, the pages are being shut down and all the internet sites are being yes. shut down. So it means that if anyone does report that they think that someone's being trafficked, that person gets into trouble. 
And the same as when you've got places in the Nordic model, which is where they ban the buying of sex, yes. then it means that that person, because they're criminalised, so it means that if they want to say, uh, so I tried to purchase some sex earlier, but I think it was uh, underage or someone being trafficked, they'll get slammed with a fine or um, you know, I think at one point there was like a letter home to your wife or something. Yeah, so they do that in the United States. Yeah. They do that in the United States. They use um, oh my god, they use yeah. license plate readers uh, for like known strolls, known places where street workers hang out, mm. and they actually use license plate readers to uh, any car that passes through that zone at night. They will send an automated letter. To the owner of the car, whoever that might be, which of course could be the guy's company or something, uh, saying, you were seen in this area of prostitution, blah, blah, blah. And of course it could have been perfectly innocent. He may have made a wrong turn. A lot of this is to make it safer for the sex workers. Is it putting off the clients? So so that makes it crap for the sex workers? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, because uh, I, I am the lay person here, right? <laughs> Literally. Yeah. So, like, we're, we're the getting laid. People. Yeah. <laughs> so my point is, every question I ask is going to be dumbass. But no, it's on. not dumb. No, it's not dumb. It's yeah. it's a sensible question. And, and the thing is, it was something you said. The excuse they use is that they want to protect us. Mm. And and frankly, my my answer to that is bullshit. I don't allow them that. And there's a lot of uh, activists and a lot of people who are might consider themselves allies who want to give them the benefit of the doubt and they want to be nice to them and they'll say things like oh these laws are well intentioned and I say stop doing that mm. stop saying that they're not well intentioned they are using that as a veneer it's a coat of paint to make it look like they're being nice no they, they're not being nice they know exactly what they're doing they know they're hurting us. They don't care. Part of it is a morality war as well. You yeah. have people who are just doing it because they just think sex and it's bad and yes. it must mean trafficking because uh, I read something really interesting. I think it must have been something, one of the links from your blog, um, where it was talking about how sex trafficking is portrayed and we have this idea that it's Liam Neeson's daughter, yes. this 20-year-old white blonde yes. all american girl and when you look at the posters for trafficking victims it will be again white blonde little girl holding a teddy but with like a ankle chain and they're not talking about the black women the people who need the money because they're disabled and they've the got no access to healthcare they're not talking about trans people of color they're not those are the people who are more susceptible to in loose terms, trafficking, which is basically in America, which is just helping people to make some money in sex work. Well, another thing, too, in the United States, which is really bizarre, is the concept that under American law, anyone under the age of 18 who sells sex is considered to be trafficked even if there is no trafficker. In other words, if you're 16 and you sell sex, you're classified as a trafficking victim and you're put into the statistics even though you're doing it on your own. Mm. There is no one trafficking you. But because the assumption is there, right, then it makes it inflates those statistics. And, of course, the majority of youth who are selling sex um, – there are there are a few exceptions, but the majority of youth who are selling sex are either runaways or throwaways, mm. right? They're either kids who were kicked out of the house literally, 
or they ran away because of sexual abuse, because the parents wouldn't accept them as gay, because the parents wouldn't accept them as trans, uh, because it's an extremely abusive environment, uh, whatever, you know, mm. and they run away and they support themselves selling sex because it is the most dependable way to support themselves. It's the easiest way. Mm. And you see a lot of these, uh, one of the proofs of that is the fact that a lot of these under 18 sex workers, the minute they turn 18 and they can work legally, a lot of them quit. The minute they can go get a straight job, the ones that really don't want to be doing sex work, stop. And of course, if they were being, quote, trafficked, close quote, if there's somebody making them do it, that wouldn't be so. Thanks very much to Maggie McNeil. And you can have a look at her blog. It's maggiemcneil.wordpress.com. So, BB, did you learn from that? What did you think about Foster and Sester? I don't know what to say. <laughs> There's a lot of information yeah. and I loved it. And she was brilliant and really um, entertaining, engaging and fascinating. And I think everyone should check out her work and I will too. And just to get my, to formulate my views a little more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, everyone is available on Twitter if you want to ask any more questions. But in the meantime... I've been Miranda Kane. Oh, who've I been? Baby Lynch. Oh, how was I? You were good. You were good. You weren't one of the best ones, but... Wow, Good Sex, Bad Sex was produced by Sam Bonham. And you can check out all our articles, including ones on Foster and Sester, at metro.co.uk. See you next week for some good sex and, indeed, some bad sex. (laughs) 